This is the Made For More podcast. The health and wellness industry can be dogmatic and stagnant. We aim to explore what makes up the true essence of the human experience by discussing health, happiness, the human body, and what it truly means to be made for more. I'm your host, Jake Reynolds, along with co-host Lauren Sock and Mary Kathleen Toner. Welcome to the Made for More podcast. I am Jake Reynolds. I'm Mary Kathleen. And I'm Lauren Sock. On today's episode of the Made for More podcast, we will be sitting down with Dr. Kimball Johnson. She is the medical director at iResearch. They have sites here in Atlanta, Savannah, Georgia, and throughout affiliates in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. They do clinical research with patients who want to volunteer for studies in mental health, medical issues, including COVID-19, ophthalmology, gastrointestinal, Alzheimer's, migraine headaches, and others. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Johnson. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, today we are diving into the topic of COVID-19, and I'm sure that you'll be answering many questions that our listeners have had on their minds for the past seven to eight months. Um, But before we get into that, can you kind of tell us what is your three-minute story of how you got into medical research in the first place. Sure. Sort of serendipitous, but I came through the um, Emory-Grady system as a paramedic first and then went to medical school there and residency um, because my family's here. And then I worked at Piedmont as a hospitalist for a year until I figured out what I wanted to do, which was private practice, which I then did for 30 years. And then interestingly, at the time I was doing CrossFit and a friend of mine was looking for some friends of hers, uh, they were looking for a doc uh, indicator and I wasn't interested at all. I was very happy in practice. And then after she nagged and nagged and nagged me, I went and met them. And I I really um, kind of fell in love with their philosophy of business as well as the two women that owned it. And we clicked. And then so over time, we, uh, I started working a little bit part time and then it just fit. It was time for me to move on and things had changed in the medical and insurance world as well. So, uh, and once I went through this door, I ended up really loving it. So it's a nice fit. Yeah. So you, you had your own practice for a little while, right? And then, well, not a little while, yes. like, like what, right. 20, 30 years almost. Well, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was in a private practice almost 30 years. Yeah. Um, and I did internal medicine and I had an in- integrative medicine slant, which is kind of interesting that I landed in sort of not really the drug industry, but I feel like that I, that, that we help uh, create medications in an ethical and proper manner. And I do believe there's a niche for it, but I'm not someone who historically has just given out a lot of prescriptions. I think the body can do an awful lot of healing by itself if given, if given enough love and food and rest and a proper amount of exercise, et cetera. Yeah. I think you, you know, in terms of your practice and when you started it, you were kind of ahead of the curve and thinking that way um, because that's, I mean, that's not what was happening, you know, 30 years ago. Um, that's true. Yeah. It was an interest of mine. I came up in the sports world and, um, you know, with injuries, there's not a lot you can do besides um, go to healers like yourself, um, but there's not like a miracle drug that you can give. So you have to learn to learn your body and trust it and then um, put yourselves in hands like yours that can, can put hands on healing, basically, uh, and then learn from that and move on. So uh, I really started to respect the body and, and what we put in it as well as what can come out of it uh, function-wise. So that's uh, sort of where my slant was. So I got interested and learned more on my own and certifications on my own, more in the integrated world. Yes. So I guess doing the research is your way of still interacting with with patients and clients, but it's just a different perspective. Well, let's, let's move a little bit, segue into um, kind of what our topic is. And um, I've always, I've enjoyed your kind of monthly or bi-monthly blog post that you do on your Facebook page, 
which is kind of a different perspective of COVID-19 and it's what's gone right. So a more positive spin on all the negativity that's been out there. But can you kind of tell us why did you decide to start writing that? And what do you feel are the main areas that have gone right so far? I actually was sort of compelled to. I mean, I had a lot of people asking me um, and it was, I had to learn about it because of our business and how to keep everybody safe here. We have a lot of employees um, in, in several cities. So it was my responsibility to get ahead of the curve. Um, and we've been very fortunate with that. And we, we jumped on it right away. Um, so we've had a very low infectivity rate and none related to the office. So, uh, and there's just so much negativity and fear and politicization outside in the world. Uh, And a long-term mentor of mine always asked me what's gone right. And that seemed to fit. And so um, with her permission, basically, I used that and it it, uh, just puts a different light on things. I mean, the sun still comes up. We're still able to communicate and, and have some social interaction, all those different so I think we can see things in a different light because there have been a lot of things that have gone right. So what do we know now that maybe we didn't know before? And maybe what's something that we thought, but we got wrong? Let me backtrack a little bit. Sure. We, this month, this, this virus is only about nine months old. Mm-hmm. So you have to think about that. It's still in its infancy. And we have learned a tremendous amount. Yeah. Um, you know, this is called COVID-19, but it was really discovered and I mean, found out about in December of 2019, yeah. which is why it's called COVID-19. Mm-hmm. But then the full DNA sequence was was um, published worldwide in the scientific community on January the 10th. Two months after that, we started phase two trials. Six months after that, in this July, we started phase three trials, which is phenomenal speed and never, ever been seen. Wow. So we've been learning on the fly mm-hmm. as we go. Um Probably the biggest thing that I would say offhand is we've learned that masks work. Mm. Some of the simple things actually really do work. Um, I know there's some divisiveness. And I, I really truly stay out of the political yeah. realm. And I don't think mask is a political issue because it's just a scientific issue. It works. Yeah. It works not only for other people, but it works for ourselves. And I can talk about this later. It may actually, this is only a theory, but it may actually help lower the inoculum um, and possibly um, be able to help create some immunity in the long run, even though it's small. Mm-hmm. And that is being tested now at the University of, South, University of um, California, San Francisco. Yeah. So it's an interesting concept. There's been, um, like you said, within our, our culture, I mean, this has been a, just a crazy up and down year. And there's been a lot of things that, you know, you said there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of politis- like politicizing this issue and, um, but, you know, I personally have experienced, you know, when I actually reflect some like positive changes in, in my life and I, and I think in the lives of others, like, you know, for example, uh, and this maybe isn't, you know, specifically virus specific, but I think this kind of forced shutdown, like caused a lot of us to sit back and, and really reevaluate what's important in life. And I think for, you know, for a lot of us, we, we spend more time with the people we love and, um, we, we've been able to, you know, just slow things down just a little bit. And, and in my estimation, that is a little bit of a positive change. So kind of uh, dovetailing off of that, how do you forecast positive changes as a culture, as a country, as a result of the pandemic, either medically or just socially? What, what are some of your ideas and thoughts on that? Well, if you think about it, this whole pandemic is really a holistic issue, both on the good side as well as the, on the bad side. Um, it's not only a pandemic, but it is an economic issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a mental health issue. It's a screening of other illnesses issue. It's a um, like getting vaccinated, the kids vaccinated and not having other um, infectious diseases emerging. So it's got uh, like lots of yeah. fingers um, in the scientific part, whereas in the, also in the non-scientific part, like you were saying, uh, we're, I mean, we're social creatures, yeah. um, but I think we have we are learning to uh, adapt and adapt mm-hmm. to um, one maybe having smaller groups and creating our own bubbles, um, learning kind of who your friends yeah. are, yeah. Um, being able to create bonds in different ways, um, and and to me, I think that that goes a long way, and just basically 
as many of us that can learn to be loving in the world in a very ter terrible situation, then we've gained, we gained. Yeah. If we can all learn a little bit of that. You mentioned um, that not only is it yeah, economic issue, a medical issue. And um, one of the things that I think has really kind of kind of come to the surface is um, the amount of deaths as a result of comorbidities. And I, I think that we've seen as United States, like we're a relatively <laughs> unhealthy country. And I think that this has really highlighted that. Um, so do, do you foresee, you know, maybe a, a shift mentally or uh, legislatively as a, as a country for where we can start to say, hold on, we need to really focus on these comorbid issues, things that people have been saying for years that we that need to be a focus on on prevention. Do you see that that changing in, in healthcare or uh, us finally giving that the attention it deserves? Actually, I hope it does. I hope it's a, a wake up call for for many people. You know, we joke about not gaining the COVID-19 right. or even the COVID-9. Mm -hmm. um, and so people, at least in joking about it, are aware of it. And at some point, I'm seeing people click with that saying, okay, I got to make a change. I need to get back into some exercise routine. I need to get back into eating a little bit healthier. I need to get back into taking care of myself a little bit. You know, um, whether that will, uh, whether that will turn into something legislative, I, I don't sure. know that. Um, it's difficult to say, yeah. but I think in the medical community, we've become more, hopefully a bit more wise, uh, and, and, and they're learning from this, uh, that preventive care yeah. matters. Um, even if it's just, like I said, exercise and nutrition versus talking about other infectious disease preventions, um, screening tests, et cetera. So hopefully it will, be, it will come more of the, to the forefront of taking care of ourselves. For sure. Yeah. And I have the big prevention question. When do you think we'll get a vaccine? <laughs> Let me look into my crystal yeah. ball. <laughs> well, I know cards. you had you had posted on your blog just the, the clinical trial process and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a better question, yeah. right? Of how yeah. that works. Uh, the process is very involved by necessity. It has a lot of, of checks and balances. Of course. Um, it has four phases, which I won't get into detail, but in every single phase there are independent committees um, that have nothing to do with pharmaceutical companies or the FDA or or any of us that, that run the trials um, that are looking at this and, and independent review boards, institutional review boards, which include lay people, not all scientific, um, some scientific um, ethicists, mm. uh, epidemiologists, statisticians, obviously medical people yeah. and scientists. So a whole array of people that have eyes on this every phase and every step of the way, even before someone even tries to um, present it to the FDA for approval. And then at the FDA, the career scientists look at it. It's not the politicians. Um, and then there's also another independent committee that has to review that while in that FDA process. It's also not affiliated with the FDA. And then after that, if it, if it looks good, then that data will then be presented to the public scientific community, key opinion leaders out in the public. And I'm sure this year it will be public uh, published online. Mm -hmm and more people will obviously be interested in it and yeah. actually looking at the data. So there will be a lot more transparent than, than it ever, I mean, it's been there, but it's yeah. going to be even more transparent this year. But to answer your question, um, like I said a minute ago, we've, we're started, uh, one company started phase three trials in July and there's another company that's starting it now. There's about six candidates and we may actually end up with several vaccines. Um, and I anticipate that we may have several vaccines. And in addition, we will have phase um, uh, phase two vaccines, not phase two, but um, improved vaccines mm -hmm. down the line with time yeah. as we learn. So I, I really don't think the safety corners have been cut, but certainly uh, red tape and priority of committee meetings and priority of uh, looking at the data um, even Zoom meetings have sped things yeah. up, uh, uh, have sped up the process, but not the safety of it. Yeah. With that said, you know, vaccines, it takes an awful lot of people to see true safety signals as opposed to a drug. So for instance, a psychiatric drug, there may be 2,000 people in a trial, whereas in, 
some of these trials, there's 60,000 people in it, and that's only phase phase three, and that's just one company. So by necessity, it has to, and then after that, you gather a safety data, even safety data, even after it has even been been given an emergency use authorization, or if it's had great data, knocks it out of the park and given licensure by the FDA. But beyond that, safety data um, is gathered. We will start to get some probably interim analysis data, probably by November, December. Wow. Uh, wow. And then if that is, I think only if we that gets, like I said, knocked out of the park with really great data, we will get uh, possibly an emergency use authorization, maybe by the end of the year, which would be historically fast. Yeah, I was otherwise, I think it's, that seems- otherwise, I think it's probably more ris- realistic yeah. in the beginning of the year. Yeah. Wow. I mean, to a lot of people and, you know, to me all all the time, I'm like, God, this is taking so long. Like I want things to (laughs) quote unquote, get back to normal, all that bratty stuff. But um, when you really look at it to be this far along in less than a year, is just amazing. Like that only happens in movies. And in some movies that doesn't even happen. So (laughs) it's just wild. It's really wild. It's truly, it's truly historic yeah. speed, and I have a lot of confidence in in the in the process, Absolutely. despite the, everything that's going mm-hmm. on in our divided world. I really do have confidence, and I'm very proud of the scientific and research um, and medical community who have really come to the plate. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, um, kind of going off of that, I think the fear surrounding COVID-19 is going to you know be around for a long time until we get this vaccine, but. Do you feel like the magnitude of the fear surrounding it is proportional to the actual threat of getting it? It is a lethal virus. It is a very highly infectious virus. So that is real. Um, We are in a pandemic. That is also real. We have an equal amount of deaths and illness. And the fact that this illness for some people continues on for a long period of time. So all those things are real. And I don't want to take anything away from that. But we also know simple things work. Mm -hmm. We know simple things like masking works, distance works, um, hygiene works, and a combination works even better. (laughs) We also know that we can create our own small bubbles um, and even larger bubbles if you're careful with it. So, um, you know, I actually don't really mind being a hermit myself. I know some people really hate that. Um, and it's it's not very good long term, um, but I, but there are ways to do things and get outside and see the sun come up and ride a bike or run or walk or be with someone you care about, um, just have some interaction. So I think the fear needs to be put in perspective. Uh, the reality of it, yes, and we do have to have respect for it, and and because it makes the rules, we don't. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it is very real. Um, and at the same time, understand that we can play by those rules and still have mm-hmm. a life. Yeah. I'm going to go a little bit off script here because I think this is something that I've kind of wondered. And I think probably many of us have wondered is, you know, as we're stepping into the you know fall and winter time, we are, we're stepping also into flu season, you know, cold season. And, you know, a good example is, you know, Two months ago, I, I woke up with a sore throat and I was like, all right, here it is. It's the big one. <laughs> you know? And I think that that's going to really kind of throw a wrench. You know, again, talking about the fear issue is how do we, aside from the, the obvious of just go and get tested, deal with both the confounding variables of having a cold and flu season that's, you know, in tandem with, the you know, the pandemic and how, how ought we handle that as individuals or collectively? Well, that's why we're, we are trying to do as much as we can ahead of yeah. time mm-hmm. to get people, um, to get people vaccinated with, um, influ- with influenza vaccine. I will say in the Southern hemisphere, um, they saw a pretty low flu season and that's, you know, it goes from there and then it drifts over to mm-hmm. here and that's how, how we get it. Um, and I'm, we're assuming because of masking yeah. and distancing and because of the pandemic. So hopefully that will help. But even if the flu vaccine is only 50% efficacious, meaning works in 50%, it still is 50%. And if you think about that, flu actually hits the whole tar- whole population, but it hits children a lot mm. harder. And children die more from flu and influenza than they do from yeah. COVID. 
the system is a little bit better. So, you know, I want to get everybody vaccinated, but yeah. particularly to get the kids vaccinated because of that. Um, and because we're, you know, they're actually together more sure. than we are generally, particularly if they're back in school, um, particularly the younger kids. What do you see in the research that isn't being talked about that uh, you feel like is impactful or, or maybe not in the research, but, you know, some of the things that have gone on um, that, you know, hasn't had enough discussion that is actually really impactful in, in a positive manner? A c- couple of things. One is, and this is probably more of my interest, um, which is my bias, but is um, rapid antigen testing. Um, it's it's a little bit of a stepchild or an orphan in because of the FDA licensing process, um, because the FDA has to license diagnostics to be 99% efficacious. Whereas the rapid antigen testing, the goal of that is to just catch people in those seven to nine days where they're really infectious enough to transmit mm. the virus, but they're not good enough to meet full diagnostic tests like a like the PCR where you're used to yeah. getting our nose rammed with. So, and those are the ones that you could have in businesses with, a, with saliva and they cost a buck each. And then doctor's offices, businesses, restaurants, movies, concerts, et cetera, um, until we actually get a vaccine that is employed um, or deployed and to the world, which is going to take a while. This is not going to be anything rapid overnight, even if we're lucky to get some data by the end of the year or beginning of next year. So that's yeah. one uh, that is interests me. The other is this inoculum theory, and, and I'm this is purely, purely only theory, but I, um, the Dr. Monica Gandhi that I mentioned, uh, University of California, San Francisco, who sort of is doing studies on this, about this inoculum theory, that that masks may be helping not only to, to pre- prevent us from getting infection, but even though they're not perfect, and so could they actually be helping us over time in that we are getting small dosages and then those people that do get infected are creating some immunity. We aren't anywhere close to herd immunity, but even if we have 5, 10, 15% of people that are around us and get um, get inoculated, I mean, we do know that the less amount of virus you're inoculated with, usually the better you are. You get a ton load of a viral cough or sneeze in you and you have risk factors, you're, you're probably going to get sicker. Mm-hmm. And if you catch something out of the side of a mask from somebody that you've walked by. So, uh, and it's going to be, inter- it'll just be interesting to see if we can slowly gain a little bit of immunity. Again, I don't, it's not going to give us to a herd immunity levels, but it'll give us some immunity, even just pockets and some people around us. It will just to make it a little bit harder to get, um, to catch the virus and we can use any kind of a break that we can get. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's kind of similar to the smallpox yeah. where they rats did this, did the scratch test and that's how people got inoculated. And that was kind of the first part of we were learning about immunity. So it's a, it's just an interesting concept, the theory that they're just now studying. So. Cool. As a, uh, kind of a science nerd, probably all of us here are a little bit, uh, you know, weird way. I'm, I'm really excited for 10 years from now, when we have some longitudinal data where we can really reflect and look back and kind of what you're doing is let's look at what we did right and maybe look at some of the pitfalls we fell into. Um, And so what, just in your your best estimation, what what do you think we're gonna look back on in in, in 10 years and say, oh man, that was was crazy or wow, we did a really good job there. And you you admit, you maybe have mentioned already a few things like masks work and some of the simple things, but, just in the, in the lifespan of this virus in the past nine months, we've seen, you know, our, our culture flip-flop in so many different ways and so much information coming out because there's been this arms race to try to figure this thing out. What, what do you think in 10 years, what we're going to look back and say, man, it's really interesting? I think sort of the KISS principle of keeping it simple yeah. um, in, in looking back and seeing. Um, and then the other, I think, is um, this is probably not a positive it's probably more of a negative but the way things have been communicated yeah. i think uh could have been done or done better however i will say again because of the speed of this virus and how we've learned about it and have started it has been a fluid situation so things are have to change yeah. in the communication regardless i think i think things could have been communicated uh better 
um, on all the simple things, including masks, distancing, hygiene, as well as some of the more intricacies of both therapeutics as well as the um, vaccine uh, studies. So, but I, I think we will look back and go, we could have done so much better if we have come together as a nation doing some of the simple things. Such a good point. And kind of old school, taking, taking care of each other, being a community, kind of that love, lead with your heart first um, for our fellow human being. And we all always do better when we do that. I'm just curious, you know, with the rapid COVID testing, um, when, when should somebody go get the test? And what I mean by that is if you have a symptom, should you go immediately? Like we talked about, you know, sometimes we'll have sore throats just because we're wearing masks and our throats get dry. Right. And, you know, people are right. like, and I'm like, oh goodness, you know, and I'll, I'll ask all my colleagues. I'm like, do you have a sore throat? They're like, yeah, because we wore a mask for, you know, eight hours and we were teaching people how to exercise with a mask on. Um, but right. like, when, do, when do people go, when should they be like, all right, I definitely need to go get, to get tested because I think this might be that I have it. So there's two categories. One, you're talking about people that are symptomatic. Mm -hmm. So rough estimate is 40% are not asymptomatic, 60% are symptomatic. Um, and we have learned that of those that are symptomatic, it's usually two days before they have symptoms to five days afterwards. So if someone has symptoms, they should just go ahead and get mm -hmm. tested. Um, if you want to be a little safer, then isolate for a day or two and then go. Um, if someone has been exposed and they don't have symptoms, I will have them isolate and then go in five days or seven days before they get mm -hmm. tested. And particularly if you're getting a rapid test, which um, it's debatable, but may not depend on the technique, of course, um, whether it is um, as, uh, as good or not. The rapid tests, again, I think are particularly the antigen tests as opposed to the, there's a two different things. There's the antigen test and there's a rapid PCR test. The, the rapid PCR type of test has to be a good technique. Um, and they're getting better. Like the, the new, um, the new one that is $5 and is an antigen test. It looks like it's actually pretty good. Um, but it, that has taken us nine months to get to. Um, and so that is, those are just coming out. So not to get into a quagmire about that, but so if symptoms, go ahead and get tested or wait a day or two. If just to, if an exposure you're concerned about, wait five right. days. What what else is, is out there that you think um, will be helpful to share with our listeners? People are always talking and asking about herd immunity. Um, and there is some, uh, definitely in, even in the scientific community, there is some uh, chasm there, some division there. But in, in general, I think it's thought of that that we're not going to get there with natural immunity. Um, if this inoculum theory pans out, it will be helpful, but we won't make it up to herd immunity. Mm. And the, the the issue with this is because there are, even though it's maybe only 10% of people that are really sick, that's a lot of people that can get sick and die. So you can't just sort of let it rip. Yeah. Um, this inoculum therapy, if we wear our masks and some people get a little bit infected from that, and if it helps us to get to a place that can um, maybe get a little bit of immunity until we get to a place where a vaccine, I think anything like that is helpful. Um, but I don't think we're going to get to herd immunity without hurting an awful lot of people. Mm. So I think masks are really the responsible way to go un until, and that's going to be quite a while, until we get a vaccine inoculated with enough people yeah. and or the virus burns out because of that, um, that we're still going to have to be responsible with our masking distancing. It's good to know. And for the vaccine, obviously, like you spoke about earlier, we're going to need um, participants in these clinical trials. Um, you said there's already been 60,000. There's, it's not enrolled yet. They've started, but that is their goal to have 60,000 in this one. Uh, others that have already started, one is 45,000. There's another one that's 30,000. And I think the other three are somewhere similar to that. So um, that will, it depends on, like, um, several of these are in India, South uh, Brazil, um, as well as the United States. So these are where some of the highest surges are. So it depends on where the surge, surge is in each community and the percent, particularly if it's above 10% or higher, then there's, it'll go faster. 
<laughs> That's one positive thing about vaccine trials is if there's more infection out there and people are out and about, then you're going to get data quicker than that. That's, that's where the hot spots are, India, Brazil, United States. And so they might get, that's why we're going to be able to get data probably quicker than we anticipated. And if you're in one of these hot spots, you know, um, in the United States, how do you become a participant or how do you get the clinical trial for a vaccine? You can, and I'm really not, trying not to use names on here because um, I'm not not affiliated with any of them, but you can definitely Google the six or seven um, pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. and um, and look on their site to get information about it. You can also go to um, uh, clinicaltrials.gov. It looks a little bit intimidating, but you can also look on there. Yeah. Um, you can also look in your um like locally, in our, like either in our site or Emory has a vaccine site. You can get on web websites and look and find vaccine trials. Um, there's an awful lot you can do through Google as well. And um, so not COVID related, how do you sign up? If someone wants to be a participant for a trial at iResearch, how do you um, sign up for that or find more information for that? You can either call mm-hmm. um, with our phone number or you can go to our website um, and and. We never pressure anybody. We just give them information. Yeah. Um, if interest, we'd love for people to come in, look at our office, have a tour, mm-hmm. talk to our, um, talk to some of our people. We got a great team, and uh, see if a research trial is even the poss- is even something that they're interested yeah. in doing or will fit. Mm-hmm. And if they like they don't fit and they still need some help, we usually will try and help them out, either like I said through the nonprofit clinic mm-hmm. um, or give them, if they need medication, giving them for a while and following them for a while or helping them with housing or food or um, someone to talk to. What's the name of the nonprofit? It's I Am Health and Wellness. Okay. And it's, it's part of, um, well, it's, it was started um, with iResearch Atlanta and Savannah, but it is a, um, like I said, it's a non-for-profit group. So it's basically a small clinical um, clinic. Okay. Um, in our office where we see patients. Great. Thank you. Well, this has been really informative and uh, we, we certainly appreciate your time here, Dr. Kimball Johnson. Um, before we before we go, uh, do you have any final thoughts? Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you feel like is important for people to know or do you feel like we kind of hit all the, the important topics there? I think we kind of hit all of them. I think I'd like to, you know, leave it on a high note. And, and I do like the idea of, of looking at it as, as what has gone right, because an awful lot has gone right. And I think if, with, if we can all learn to lead with our heart, maybe not watch the drama so much on the news every day or get sucked into all of that with social media, some is fine, just like anything else. A little bit goes a long way. Sometimes too much is too much. And lead with our hearts learn to be a little bit more loving and patient with each other that um, we'll come out of this. Well, thank you. Thank you again for your time. And this has been really great. Thank you guys. Welcome back everybody to made for more. We just finished up talking with Dr. Kimball Johnson at iResearch and um, hopefully kind of took away some, some nuggets. And uh, I really like where she's going with regards to putting a positive spin on things and what are the things that we can do as individuals to contribute to the solution. And um, one of the, the questions I had asked her, which was, you know, we've seen the the role that comorbidities play in the deaths related to COVID. And I think we all saw some of the data that was released a while ago by the CDC that was heavily misconstrued, which was that only 6% of people are, are dying from COVID alone, and that the other 94% have comorbid conditions, which to me, what I took away from that was, wow, we're a really comorbid country, and we, we really you know, need to start tackling that if we want to be healthier as a society, as you know, communities. Um, and so I, I think the, the one thing that got me kind of reflecting on that, which was, what is it that I can do to, to be a part in playing the, a positive role to tackle uh, COVID and the pandemic and getting our society kind of back on track. And it's very easy to feel powerless in these situations. And with regards to, you know, we, 
we say, oh, well, the, the doctors will figure it out or our leaders will figure it out. And I think that there's a much larger role that, you know, as even physical therapists, we can do to contribute to the, the solution here, which if I were to just look at just my skill set is helping people live longer, healthier lives through helping people understand their pain better, through helping people understand what it means to be healthy uh, systemically and getting people fitter and stronger. Um, and so I think that when we're looking at prevention and tackling the comorbid things, the way that we, our clinic can really be a part of the solution is helping in prevention of comorbid issues and how those things kind of rise to the top when an illness does strike. And so, you know, we have really focused over the past few months on, you know, educating ourselves on uh, being better at instructing people in exercise where we've done courses along the way to help us better understand uh, or, or deepening our knowledge on exercise and the application of exercise. We've done, we've bought equipment to help people understand their anthropomorphic measurements or, or rather their the things that are going on with them, the musculoskeletally, that they can be better. And so this is an area that we feel like we've contributed positively in that in that direction. And so I think with that, Lauren and Mary Kathleen, kind of what are some of your thoughts on how we can be better as clinicians and as community partners with regards to um, helping people actually beat COVID through our, our very narrow lane here? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, since I'm not a clinician, it's really important when someone calls or someone com comes into the office, a new patient, especially who maybe is not um, already indoctrinated into <laughs> our little community here. Um, Cause we do, we see people, there's some people we see twice a week for prevention mm -hmm. and they're 75 Hello. years old and they're back there in the gym working out with you guys as hard as they can. Um, mm -hmm. And they lead a really healthy great lifestyle. And I think it's benefited them so greatly because they have seen that um, investing in themselves and in their health and their wellness is really what pays off, that it's an investment. It's not just um, when you get sick, you need to go get it taken care of. It's you need to always be on top of it and you need to treat yourself as an investment because you get this one body. And mm -hmm. um I just really think that you can tell with those patients who even if they come in and they they don't start treating themselves as an investment or taking it seriously until they're in their 40s, things turn around for them. And they sure. really um, it really impacts who they are, who, their mental health mm -hmm. um, and just their day to day life, as well as their physical health. And I think for me, just letting people know, like, hey, it seems like a. a like you're spending all this money up front, but look what you're going to get in the long run. You're going to yeah. get a long, healthy life. And there's all this data that you and Lauren talk about to me that proves it. That still shocks me. Mm -hmm. um, so I think really just in my attitude with people, just showing like this is going to help you, not just with COVID, but with mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, you know, we get people that come to us and they're, they're seeing, you know, their parents, for instance, and they're mm -hmm. saying, you know, I see that my mom has had a knee replacement or that, you know, my father is overweight and mm -hmm. I, I have to be better for, you know, than, than what they've become, not just for myself, but for my children too. And it's kind of that whole, like, put the oxygen mask on first, you know, and the plane's yeah. going down so that you can help others. And with COVID, people are seeing that, like, I've got to, I've got to, I have to take control and I actually can take control because sometimes it feels so out of control, especially now, but they come into us and we are able to give them that control back by, again, the education piece and helping sure. them, like you said, MK, the investment that yeah. they are now invested in their health because that is their longevity. And if they don't, then the likelihood of, of living that fulfilling life is not going to be there. And but that, that's what we do really well is giving people that the hope that there is a better tomorrow by giving, putting the control back in their hands and with the, with everything that we're doing as a team and, yep. um, you know, where we're trying to move the business forward more into mm -hmm. that wellness model rather than a reactionary treat mm -hmm. an injury or a surgery. We actually prevent that from even happening in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I think that, again, you know, this is, we do one thing and we do one thing, I think, pretty well. And I think that just owning that and trying to adapt our practice and the way that we see things and the way that we treat people is a positive contribution to helping our, our country bounce back. And so this is, this is not to be preachy or anything like that, but I, I am proud of the, some of the steps that we've taken in that. Um, and I think that, you know, the more that we can all as individuals um, think about how is it that I, I can help, even when it's not something that necessarily feels like, well, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, yeah. even, even if you're, you don't have anything to do with healthcare, you know, can you find, find a, a, an accountability partner to say, Hey, like, let, let's go running together. Um, mm -hmm. and just help kind of build each other up to, you know, using the, the things, the simple things that Kimball was talking about that can really actually help to positively contribute to, to recovery here. So, yeah, uh, I think this is important discussion and I think it's, um, when we focus on keeping things positive, we're, we're able to kind of find, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel and actually, you know, get, get to where we want to get faster. So, yeah. Um, um, sorry. We had, no. Yeah. Uh, we had talked to, to Kimball about some, maybe some myths, um, you know, related to COVID. What are some myths that maybe we, we see and could be COVID related, could be, you know, just body related. What are some myths that, that we see, um, to that, you know, clinically that we can maybe help debunk here and, um, just kind of off one off the top of my head, and I'm sure you guys have plenty of others. And Mary Kathleen, I know you you are kind of front lines. You know, you're talking to people probably mm -hmm. first, and so um, <laughs> you'll hear things people you know people say some, yeah. some pretty interesting comments. What what are some myths that that you guys are seeing, hearing on on a daily basis that maybe we can help debunk? So two have actually come up this week a couple of times each. Um, it's weird how stuff like that happens, how yeah. you'll you'll hear something from someone on the phone, a prospective client, mm -hmm. and um, then you'll hear it again that same day or two days later, and you had never heard it before. Um, right. But this one is really common, and I always believed this one, too, until reading your one of your recent blogs, Jake, um, <laughs> that I'm too young to be in pain. And as soon yeah. as you hit 30, um, <laughs> which Jake and I both are, that's when you can start expecting <laughs> right. hey, your back hurts, your neck hurts, you slept weird, so you're in pain for the next <laughs> 20 years. Yeah. Um, and I always believed that, and now I there's two sides to this coin. Now I understand that you can experience pain when you're young, like, sure. it, and that's not weird, but also you shouldn't expect to just be in pain because of your age. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's weird how we, we put pain in these little boxes that, you know, we associate or assign to certain individuals or certain phases in our life. But, you know, pain is so, so complex and so multivariate. I mean, we've all physically hurt from heartbreak. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, even as a young kid, right, we've experienced heartbreak as a teenager, your first love, you know, dumps you. Yeah. That hurts, right? That's yeah. pain. Pain is also breaking your arm. Mm -hmm. uh, pain can also be something that you experience um, from, you know, uh, so, so many different inputs to our system can cause pain, whether it be a physical stimuli, an emotional stimuli, uh, a perceived painful stimuli. So, yeah, I mean, I think we need to start thinking about pain as not only as a, as an ally to us, because pain is, you know, there, there's this idea that pain is a gift, right? And there's, mm -hmm. there's plenty of people who don't experience pain. And there's actually medical conditions that people don't experience pain that are actually really dangerous because pain yeah is a sign that tells our body that something's not right here. Um, and so I think you're right. And what's interesting about you know, the United States in, in general is that we are so privileged and we are, we have this expectation that I shouldn't experience pain. Yeah. And I, I probably say this way too often is that, you know, that the guarantees in life are, you know, death taxes and pain. Like these, these are the things we should expect in life. And, um, 
we shouldn't see pain as this big, scary, hairy, nebulous thing. And sometimes it is complicated, but sometimes it is a really simple thing. And if we kind of learn to embrace it and embrace it as something that we're going through and not a, a, a destination, that it'll be easier to overcome that. So yeah, I think you're right that we need to take pain out of a box a little bit and say, this is an ally. This is something that um, is is just reinforcing something to our our, our body. You know, uh, when you get tickled, you laugh, right? Yeah. When you experience pain, it's your body telling you something, right? So yeah, it's hard. It's hard because you grow up and you think that pain is the enemy. Absolutely. But um you know, from what I've learned here, it's not, it truly is. Like you said, it's your ally. It's letting you know that there is an enemy, that something Mm -hmm. needs to be addressed and fixed and worked on. And it's not the pain that you're trying to fix. It's whatever is causing the pain or alerting the pain to alert you. And I think that has been the biggest shift in my thinking towards pain and pain that I experienced myself. So um, Mm -hmm. I think it could really benefit a lot of people to change mm-hmm. their perspective a little. Well, and, and, you know, to that point too, you know, we're always advocating for people to try different things and to mm-hmm. test their body. And when you test your body in different ways, it's going to hurt because yeah. your body's never experienced that, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means you're doing something differently mm-hmm. and your brain is saying, okay, what, what's going on here? This is a new activity, a new demand yeah. on my body. For and sure. it's just, you know, you just have to you know, if it's painful, then go see a physical therapist, go see yeah. some a movement specialist, even a trainer can just say, Hey, you know what, like, just tweak the movement a little bit, and then it's not going to hurt you. Um, mm-hmm. So just think of it as like, okay, I did something different. And I might have a little bit of pain, but it's not an injury. It's just hurting temporarily. Yeah, I think that plays right into a, another myth that I hear. Um, and I, I know, Lauren, I mean, you've been practicing 20 years, so I know you've heard this one a lot in your in your life is some of the things that we do as physical therapists, it's hard to see the correlation between how that's going to help us get better. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, when you go to a chiropractor or a PT and they do a spinal manipulation for a painful spinal segment and you get immediate relief, there's an easy thing to understand. Okay, this is how this is helping me, right? Mm-hmm. I experienced something, right, immediately. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about really helping people and helping to create strong, healthy organisms, one of the best things that you know we've learned just with, with time and exposure is that one of the best things for back pain is a deadlift and heavy deadlifting. And sometimes it's hard to get people to understand how does this actually help me? And I, I've heard this a few times, like, what's the correlation here? How is this going to help me feel better? Mm-hmm. What, how, how do we start to debunk this? And maybe we just need to be better about as practitioners, help people understand these things. But yeah, do you hear this a lot? Do you see this a lot, Lauren? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, the other day I was working with a client and, and um, you know, just we were working on getting his back stronger. And he mm-hmm. said, well, I just don't I don't see how this is going to help me because it's really hard and it hurts. Mm-hmm. And, well, where does it hurt? And, you know, it's in his glutes because working your glutes helps your back. Yeah. yeah. And um, and I'm like, but that's the weakness that's mm-hmm. causing your back pain. If we don't start to strengthen that part, then we're never going to get to your back because yeah. mm-hmm. you're overloading other areas. So, yeah, I hear it all the time and I just have to you have to educate them and and help them to understand that you're not trying to hurt them. We're just trying to make them stronger and more resilient mm-hmm. so that they don't have the back pain or whatever else is going on. Yeah. It, it's so easy. You know, I always think about, you know, when, when I was a child and I just didn't understand something and I would question my parents about why, do you, why is this the way it is? And they would say, you're just going to have to trust me on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, so often so as a practitioner, mm-hmm. you just yeah. say, oh, just trust me on this. But like, we definitely have to do better in helping people understand that mm-hmm. and wrap their heads around that. But uh, sometimes it's a slow, you know, maybe we just need to be better about painting the roadmap yeah. and just saying, okay, some of these things we're going to do along the way are building to where we want to go. And, but it's slow, you know? And I mean, it truly is a perspective shift for people. It's not an easy thing to understand, especially I think, like you said, in America, we're super blessed. So we have all these opportunities to get that instant relief from pain. And so people just have to shift their, their perspective and how they view it. Um, One of the other myths that I've heard two or three times this week on the phone that people have asked and 
Um, I think it is really common. It must be that people think you need to have an MRI before you come see a physical therapist. I think that everyone thinks that you Mm. can only, or not everyone, but a lot of people think that you can only come see a physical therapist if you've had an injury, (laughs) which we talk about a lot is not true. We are (laughs) trying to be preventative. Um, So explain um, to people, do you need an MRI to come see a physical (laughs) therapist? We hear that all the time. That is just, you know, people are hesitant to come in. Um, and, and I think that just comes from the fact that our medical community has done a poor job managing pain, just like yeah, Jake said. For sure. That we hear all these stories where people get into chronic pain, they have multiple surgeries, the opioid use, mm-hmm. all of that. So we think, okay, we need to really figure out what's going on. We need an MRI right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that if you get an MRI, they say that you're I think 34% more likely of having surgery if you get an MRI than if you did conservative treatment alone. And we all know when you have surgery, that is not necessarily a fix. It can be, you know, that could lead to that you're, you're still on medication because you never fixed the problem in the first place. And the reason that's a problem is that, you know, physicians and the medical world in general, they treat scans, imaging scans. Mm -hmm. That's what they're trained to do. And we like to say in physical therapy, like we don't treat scans, we treat people. And Mm -hmm. truly it's looking at how they move, but also knowing if if we look at the research um, and at people who are pain-free, so healthy pain-free people, they say that 33% of all people have had a rotator cuff tear or some damage to their rotator cuff, Mm -hmm. but they still have no pain. Um, 65% have cartilage damage in their knee. And, but they don't have pain doing the activities they love. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you go into disc problems. So like low back pain and things like that, almost, you know, I think 85 to 95% of people, if they have an image, it's going to show they have a bulging disc. Yep. That's yeah. a huge number of people. So yeah. we have to remember just because you have that does not mean you're in pain or that you're going to have a disability or some sort of problem later on in life. So we like to always say, you know, the mystery is in the history of the problem. So what yep. led up to that problem in the first place? And let's let's take some steps back and, and, and get to the root of it, because those those um, injuries that might be on an MRI or those abnormal findings, they could have been there 20 years ago. Like, yeah. it's not that you're, you have pain now and suddenly that's the cause of your problem. It could have been there. And and so and it's not been causing you any problem until now. And when they come, people come to us, we're looking at how they move. We're trying to understand, okay, let's, let's test your strength. Let's test your range of motion. Let's look at all these factors that could be contributing to it. And then we get you on a plan to help you get better. But the scan itself, you know, when people bring it in, I'm like, you know, I don't even want to look at that. Let me look at you first. And then I'll use the scan as, you know, backup to really reinforce what I'm finding. But I... I choose not to look at it because I don't want it to skew me. So when would you encourage someone or when, if you were talking to a patient or when is it that people need an MRI? Yeah. I, I think Lauren touched on a a really poignant kind of point there, which is, and I I do think we have to understand a little bit of the history of of these things. And, you know, the MRIs, CT scans, x-rays are amazing medical technology that have done a tremendous amount for, for us as, as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a massive pitfall in the line of thinking of um, practitioners that then spills over into the attitudes and beliefs as clients. And so a uh, great example is what we just talked about is that pain is so complex and multivariate that we assume Let's, let's take the example of cancer. If you have cancer and you do a CT scan and they're able to identify the cancer, they say, great, we know that tissue or that cancer is the issue. Let's extract it. Mm-hmm. Well, pain is not a tissue. Yeah. Pain is a, an emotional and sensory. It's not a primary sensation. It's an, it's, a, it a, it's an experience in the brain. Mm-hmm. And so because we treat certain other illnesses and other things with scans that we were able to say, remove the disease from the body, we'll get rid of the symptoms. Pain doesn't work like that. Yeah. And so there's this, uh, the, the wrongful assumption that when you have pain and you do the MRI, the MRI will identify the area that's painful. Thus, if we remove that thing from the body, the pain will go away. And that's not the case. And so right. 
to, to answer your question about when should people get an MRI? Generally speaking, let's use low back pain as an example. Mm -hmm. If you have low back pain, that is not an indication to get an MRI. If you have low back pain and you seek out conservative management first and it's not getting better, that might be an indication. Yeah. The probably hard and fast rules, and this is where evaluation comes into play, is that for low back pain, if I see somebody and they've got what we would call red flag symptoms, low back pain combined with a dangerous mechanism of injury or a sudden insidious onset of pain with no clear explanation combined with loss of reflexes, loss of what we call myotomal strength, with, which is um, weakness caused by the nervous system mm -hmm. and loss of bowel and bladder function. Those are all red flags that I say, hold on, this is, this is not a normal type yeah. of back. Now you can have some of those things and still be okay to treat it conservatively. But if you have all of those things, and again, depending on the degree of those things, then that would be an indication. But this is where we need to be better is that if we do a physical examination and we identify these things that we perceive to be red flaggy uh, type of symptoms, we see those things and then we go and get the MRI and the MRI confirms what you found in your physical examination, that's a good indication to say, okay, this is where this MRI is important. Yeah. So, and you can through a, a physical examination, I think this is where people, they, they really want us to see their scans because they believe it will help us identify what needs to be treated, mm -hmm. which again, pain is not a tissue. So yeah. that often very rarely is the circumstance. I think if we can identify something which we're very good at identifying, if somebody has a, a disc issue and they have certain nerve symptoms, we can say with very good certainty, your nerve presentation is in this pattern. I can probably tell you it's going to be this disc that's injured. Go and get the MRI. That disc shows a positive. Cool. Let's treat. Let's go after that disc from a conservative management standpoint. And so it's using the MRI to confirm what we're finding if we believe the findings to be dangerous or something that just isn't sitting right. So yeah. I think and I hope that answers that question. Yeah. Yeah. That was good. Um, well, let's wrap up here. And I think we'll talk about the tip of the day, which I think is a um, a dovetail off of what uh, Dr. Kimball Johnson was saying, which is um, more about uh, being empathetic. And if Lauren or Mary Kathleen, if you want to talk about this, um, feel free to take a stab at it. Otherwise, I will kind of... Um, go into what I think the, the tip of the day ought to be. I, I think, I think you're right. I mean, just, just being open, like we talked about leading with a, a, a big heart and understanding where people are coming from. And even to the point of like, if you, if you don't believe in masks, for instance, but you see somebody on an elevator with a mask, like, and they want you to wear the mask, they just, you know, it's just wear the mask. Like, I mean, people Easy. are so resistant to their own opinions, but if somebody has fear, just, just try to understand where that fear comes from and, you know, just put the mask on. You're, you're mm -hmm. riding up, you know, a few floors. It's not very long and, um, and just, you know, makes people feel comfortable and, and everybody has their own level of fear and, and what they feel comfortable with. So, um, yeah. that would be my tip. Yeah, sure. I completely agree. I um, I recently had an Uber ride and my Uber driver was not wearing a mask. And I am in the more fearful category of people where I would like for everyone around me who's not in my bubble to wear a mask. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it just, it really goes a long way. Even if you don't believe or you don't think it works, if it's not hurting you, please just wear the mask. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that this obviously is not too you know, be preachy or anything like that. I think that it just a little bit of empathy in a time of crisis can go a long way. Absolutely. I think that the more that we try to understand each other and um, just 
come at a situation operating from a place of love and, and, and not fear or not judgment, I think is probably the best way that we can handle these things. And I, I think I've learned that more and more. I think I've become a lot more open to, to that and just trying my best. And um, I think that we're, we're all trying that. I think we have a lot of discussions about these things amongst ourselves. And I think probably most people in, in general are. And so I think it's just healthy to kind of keep these ideas going uh, to kind of just, you know, what, what is the famous quote? It's uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Yeah. And I think that extends to, you know, your neighbor, your, you know, and, and the people you don't know. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Totally agree. Good stuff guys. So, well, thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next time.